This is an AMI podcast. I'm Kelly McDonald. I'm Ramia Amadin, and this is Kelly and Ramia. Live from the Accessible Media Studios, this is Kelly and Company. Entertainment, lifestyle, and great conversation. It's AMI Audio's on air community, and everyone's invited. And now, the big man himself, Kelly McDonald. Settling in for the Friday edition as we swing open the gateway to your weekend, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you for being with uh, with me today and my co-host out of Kitchener. On t- when doesn't he stop talking sports? He has a habit of doing it on our show on Mondays, Mr. Brock Richardson. Hello, sir. We can't even say I'm going to stop talking sports here because I know what's coming very soon. But hello, it's nice to uh, be alongside you on a Friday. A little pinch hitting had to take place, but uh, happy to be here as always. Sir, uh, I always get into this conversation in the fall and sometimes in the spring, but particularly I love fall. Uh, is this one of your favorite times of the year or are you more of the staunch summer person? It, I, I am more of the staunch summer person. It, oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, no, I know. I'm sorry. Somebody's finger slipped back there. You know, they played that sound effect. Yeah, I, I am more of the summer person because I find that as you fade out of the summer, it like drastically goes from fall to just like freezing. Like you just have like a week of nice fall weather and then every other day is freezing weather, raining. It's uh, not my favorite. And okay. I absolutely hate winter. So, yeah. Well, they're going to have to deal with that. We'll talk a bit about the fall classic in a few moments, folks. Uh, you know, they'll have the beautiful weather in Houston under or maybe with the dome open. The rare times they do that when the weather lends itself to it in Houston. And you may be saying, what do you mean, Houston? Why wouldn't they have it open if you're not really a fan? Uh, something they call heat. Oof. Oh, yeah, blazing heat. Uh, but, of course, to cool off, <laughs> they do go back to Philadelphia to play some of the games. We'll talk <laughs> in a few moments about that. Uh, anyway, let's see what's coming up today on this edition of Kelly and Company. Folks, we're announcing it. A screenless smartphone is here. But what does that even mean? We'll find out with John Beeler shortly. The Paratuff Cup is a flagship fundraiser for the Paralympic Foundation of Canada. We learn more about this unique event and where you can play some sports and meet some para-athletes. Wow, it's going to be lots of fun for people who get that opportunity. Folks, we have an opportunity for you. It's story time today. For the Friday before Halloween, we have uh, a few paranormal experiences recounted to us from members of our team. We'll do that during our Cut for Time segment later on in uh, hour two of Kelly and Company. Before we get to the baseball chat, I do want to mention some unfortunate news that just came down. Rock and roll pioneer Jerry Lee Lewis has died at the age of 87. Known as the killer, Jerry Lee Lewis hit it big in the late 50s with his wild piano-pounding style and hits like a whole lot of shaking going on and great balls of fire. Asked once how he got started. I read in this magazine where Sam Phillips had made Elvis Presley into a star. And I figured if he could make Elvis into a star, he could make me into a star. Later in his career, he switched over to country music, becoming a successful artist in that genre. Lewis was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 1986, and the country music Music Hall of Fame in 2022. Matt Wolf, ABC News. Well, we know that there's been some checkered past at different times with Jerry Lee Lewis. 
But I don't know. Don't think I could ever get used to being called the killer and uh, kind of soak that up. But uh, you know what? When you have such a career, such a life as as he had, and uh, so much, uh, I don't want to say fun. I can't speak for him. But uh, memorable moments and 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 enjoyment at doing music. But what a way to go into that with an attitude. Well, if you can do it for Elvis, you can do it for me. I. Uh, I think that's that's absolutely classic, Brock, is that unfortunate news came down today of Jerry Lee Lewis's passing. Yeah, it's um, unfortunate that uh, more and more, you know, uh, legends are getting up there in the world. And, and uh, it's, the world's going to miss um, this for sure. Yeah, for this, this guy, 100%. Such a great, great Go person. It's, um, it's every day, though, we're hearing this, isn't it? Yeah, it just Somebody's seems like passing. One after another uh, that seem, seems to be uh, coming. And for me, what I pin it back to is we started hearing this when, you know, it seems like when Betty White uh, passed away, everyone else, you know, uh, of of that same kind of age bracket kind of yep. followed suit. So yeah, when one goes, it's like a domino effect. Yeah, quite a cluster as a matter of fact. Uh, sir, I want to get over to baseball talk a little bit tonight. The Fall Classic begins Houston and Philadelphia. Uh, do you have any particular pick? Where do you want to start? I mean, we do want to acknowledge um, the Canadian who is the manager of the Philadelphia Phillies, Rob Thompson, born in Sarnia, Ontario, and uh, been in the major leagues uh, really since 85 in the sense of trying out, being selected by... Uh, a team, and I'm oh, sorry, off the top of my head, I can't remember who he was selected. Of course, coaching in the New York Yankees system. Uh, so we're happy to hear that. I'm sure up here, a lot of Canadians who don't have the Blue Jays to root for are suddenly Phillies fans. Now, where do you stand? I stand that I am a supporter of Rob Thompson and the Philadelphia Phillies. I do think, though, if you're going to give a nod to a team, You've got to look at the Houston Astros. Their lineup is just deeper than deep. You know, Dusty Baker, speaking of manager, has been in the playoffs a ton and just hasn't really gotten over the edge of, uh, you know, winning the World Series. So that is also a storyline. Rob Thompson wants to poo-poo the arm Canadian. You know, he kind of has the narrative of, well, I've been doing this for a long time. I've been Canadian all my life and, yeah, it's cool, but I have a World Series to win. Um, the the narrative too that I've heard of, like, you know, oh, this will this if if Houston um, wins the World Series, this will legitimize their 2017 uh, championship. I disagree vehemently. I think that you know you're never going to change uh, something that happened. They cheated. They were caught. They've moved on. The organization has you know overhauled itself. But I certainly don't think this is going to legitimize it. In fact, if they win, it's going to prove that their organization was deep enough that they didn't have to do uh, this action. But as far as legitimizing it, nah, I don't buy it. Well, obviously, I understand that. I get that viewpoint about legitimizing it. Where I have a uh, not a concern. I mean, obviously, I felt they should have been stripped of the title. That's just my viewpoint. The thing is, all teams, though, will take any advantage they can get, whether it's a paper they find on the ground, whether it is stealing signs, if you want to call it that. You know, you take advantages of what you see, whether it's the grip that, that a pitcher gets before throwing a particular pitch. You steal all that. But doing some of the things that make you really get slapped on the hand, uh, whether it's doing any cheating through the computers, through 
whatever. Okay. When it comes to, in in the case of Houston, it caused irreparable damage to certain people's careers. We can think of a Blue Jay who was put in that position. So I kind of get kind of shaking my head. Anyway, uh, awesome. Enjoy World Series, ladies and gentlemen, as it kicks off tonight. There's going to be some great baseball, some very talented players that are on the field. We've got Grant Hardy. He's coming up next to join Brock and I. We have him for uh, the latest lifestyle headlines. This is Kelly and Company as we're getting underway on the Friday edition. Look at that. Gateway to the weekend. Starting to swing open. Yay! On Twitter, this guy is at uh, NeutralZoneBR. That's his handle. I'm at AMI Kelly Mac, And, of course, you can follow AMI-audio to see what's happening from segment to segment at AMI-audio over there on the machine, big old machine Twitter. We won't even get into the multiple discussions we can have about Twitter today. Feedback at AMI.ca if you want to send an email to the gang in communications and marketing. Maybe you've got some questions about Accessible Media Inc., AMI-TV, AMI-Tele, or AMI-Audio. Feedback at AMI.ca. And, of course, we always love to hear your voice. Give us a call, 1-866-509-4545. Love to hear from you. 1-866-509-4545. Mention to us that it's okay to use your message on air. If we can, we shall. Otherwise, we certainly won't. In case you just want to comment or, or make a suggestion, you can do it that way. Uh, Mention that it is for Kelly and Company. Brock Richardson, that's that guy over there in Kitchener, Ontario. I'm at the home studio in London, Ontario. And out in BC, we'd like to welcome in to talk lifestyle with us today is reporter Grant Hardy. Grant, welcome back to the show. Howdy doody. Oh, hello, Kelly and Brock. You know what? I still want to give that show number a call and leave you guys a message. Just haven't decided whether I'm going to give you permission to air my message, though. I want to know (laughs) if you called, would you change your voice? Ooh, that's my do you know what? I have the voice recognition set up on my (laughs) voice assistants. And whenever whenever I change my voice, it still recognizes that I'm the same person. So I don't feel like I could fool anyone. Wow. Would you change your voice, Brock, if you called uh, like the the one eight six six five one nine four five number four five? Would you would you change your voice? No, I I have left messages for you guys, and again, I would be I would be that one. It's like, come on, you're not pulling nothing over anyone. We know exactly who you are. So if I call, I'm just me, myself, and I. Because, so so even uh, if you were whining and complaining about something, no, I'd probably just get someone else to call. Oh, okay. And, oh, see, that's even smarter. <laughs> smart. That's really smart. I like it. <laughs> he was quicker on that one than, than you and I. I can, oh my gosh. Yeah, yeah. I got somebody like Tim or somebody to call. Uh, Grant, <laughs> where are you oh, starting right. today, sir? Okay, we are starting with some tips from award-winning journalist, radio host, speaker, and best-selling author Celeste Headley on four things Never to do if you want to make a good first impression. Number one, you never focus on yourself, she says. One of the most common mistakes is rushing to talk about ourselves. She says that's understandable because 
We want to impress the other person. So we throw out lines about our accomplishments, interests, and experiences. But this can backfire. For example, if you don't pay attention and suddenly you're mispronouncing the name of the person you're talking to or you're asking a question that was already answered. She says the best communicators make it a point to hear what the other party is saying and engage with them rather than focusing all the attention on themselves. Mm. Uh, mm. That's interesting yeah. because I think of people, Grant, who, you know, they, hi, Grant, how are you? Oh, I'm having a good day. I went out for lunch and I went out for lunch too, Grant. And they take the ball back and they're gone about themselves. Oh, yeah, totally, totally. Um, interestingly, the next kind of goes in tandem with this one, but she says, never try to be funny without context until you really get to know someone. It's impossible to predict whether your joke will inspire laughter or simply fall flat. Ooh. Now, this doesn't mean you shouldn't try to be funny. Uh, humor can be a great tool for easing tension or getting rid of awkwardness, but the key is to use positive humor, not negative. So she describes positive humor as lifting each other up, laughing with others, gently creating a safe, comfortable, and vulnerable space, is gentle-spirited and humble, and integrating the listener with self and others, whereas negative humor puts the other person down, laughs at the expense of others, humiliates, discounts, or ridicules, deals in stereotypes. You know what's really interesting about this is, um, I don't know if you guys have ever done this, but, you know, sometimes having a disability... I I'm sorry? Oh, no, go ahead, sir. Oh, um... Sorry, I just heard a little blip in my audio. Um, sometimes having a disability, I try and use um, humor to put the person at ease. I'll say something like, well, I'm not going to bother making any bad jokes. But sometimes they <laughs> kind of play on disability-related stereotypes. And sometimes that can really backfire because it actually makes the person uncomfortable rather than uncomfortable. So I've I've actually kind of learned... Um, to keep humor very light and just positive and non-stereotypical at the be at the beginning. I don't know what you guys think. Well, it's a, I'm going to let you pick this up here, Brock, if I just want to slide in. For example, a moment ago, I made the, the reference with Twitter and the Elon Musk thing. And if you do that with somebody you don't kind of know, and you don't know their stance, it could very much make a conversation, and this is the way I take it, go away to where they stop to. Well, what do you mean by that? Whether they know about Elon Musk, Twitter, whether they're an Elon Musk fan, and maybe I'm saying something. If you don't have that knowledge of their their sense of humor, their sensitivity, uh, you know, it, you are either maybe going over their head, going in an area they don't know or or don't like, and you don't have the, the, the information to say is that kind of a thing. It's better to, to joke about something that is that is positive. I totally get that, Brock. Yeah, it, it is because you can get into some – some real trouble when you think, well, I'm just kidding. And, you know, the common phrase we, we, we all use as soon as somebody, you know, gets up their, their defense mechanism is I was just teasing or I was just kidding. Mm. But in the moment, you don't always know. And for me, like the challenge is using humor over, over a text message. Like that is <laughs> the, the hardest place to use humor. You can put all kinds of smiley faces, all kinds of whatever, but the emotion is just not there. So staying positive is probably the best thing for you because you just never know, especially if it's somebody, as you point out, that you really don't know 
or you may not know them as well as you think you know them. Yeah, that's, I think that's the idea. And I, I think a lot of us are guilty of this too. And this kind of goes along with uh, the first tip as well is a, lo- a lot of us tend to make, uh, I think, self-deprecating humor when we're nervous too, talking about our own sort of maybe issues with our like body image and joking about it or whatever. But I don't know, maybe that can kind of bring up other people's issues as well. So maybe it's best left until you know the person better. Um, her other two tips are basically to uh, never go in networking without prepping first, especially if it's really important. I've done that just enough times to know that it is a big mistake. And also to never expect the worst. It's easy to overlook the potential uh, ups, the upsides and instead obsess over all the things that could go wrong. Meeting people for the first time can be a little awkward and you might make mistakes, but that's okay. You don't have to expect a perfect performance. So all in all, I think these are some uh, solid tips that honestly could be used in our line of work, but also just for those, uh, I was going to say barbecues, I guess barbecue season is over those, uh, those social occasions. Yeah, for sure. Uh, All right. Let's see here, guys. we got time for one more. Oh gosh. Yeah. We'll slip another in. We'll make time. Okay. Let's see if we got anything in my back pocket here. Okay, something's coming out. So Canadians could actually maybe, maybe, maybe be paying less for a cell phone plan in the near future in a Mm. long-awaited decision. The country's telecom regulator has approved the terms and conditions for a policy that will give Canadians more options when it comes to cell phone providers The Canadian Radio Telecommunications Commission, CRTC, confirmed the details of the mobile virtual network operator, MVNO, in a news release on Wednesday. This is a little bit of jargon, but this is what this means. It basically opens the door for more companies, particularly smaller regional wireless providers in rural areas, to have access to the cellular networks of Canada's telecom giants like Bell, Rogers, and Telus, minimizing the monopoly these major providers have will hopefully increase competition and therefore lower prices in the cell phone space. According to the commission, this will help provide more affordable options to millions of Canadians while increasing competition. So in the U.S., you are probably aware, like they have just a ton of providers like Mint Mobile and Ting and Virgin, yeah. I think, and a ton. And you wonder, like, do, are there really this many net, like actual towers up there? And they're not, because what these companies are able to do is purchase in bulk from like AT&T and Verizon and then resell that to consumers. And we've never really been able to do that in Canada. And now it seems like maybe we're going to loosen up a little bit and expect those bigger providers to negotiate in good faith and provide those services, at least in smaller areas for now. Well, we know we pay more than anyone else in the world. Uh, and, and that's what's really so frightening. So many people visit Canada and say, you pay what? 
Oh my, <laughs> I couldn't afford to have a phone here. And in so many places in the world, that's all people have. Not by choice. It works better for their system to just have cell phones. And I know a lot of people will say, well, the Americans, it's a bigger population. China, um, you know, in India, the different provide you, you can have competition in that sense, or you can you can afford to sell it at, at an affordable cost. We can't. We always come up with that excuse in Canada and hide behind population, hide behind how we pay people and their amount of money. And so we have to keep the prices high so we can pay our staff. I, I don't know, Brock, do you see this really happening, having an effect? Do you? I mean, we all welcome it. And I don't mean, oh, gosh, it's great. They've cut it down by a dollar and a half. Yeah, mm. no, it, it's funny we're having this conversation because I was literally in a mall recently and I wanted to go. I have had issue with my phone bill being as expensive as it is for a long time. And I went over to a competitor of my phone bill and I said, what can you offer me? And they could offer me a significant amount less. And then all of a sudden, all of a sudden, as we went through the whole process, they said, oh, as I look further in my system, you're now going to have to pay a bigger down payment because of X, Y, Z. So it's like, well, you just told me the amount was this much. And now as we get digging into it a little deeper, now all of a sudden my down payment has to be bigger, which means that I'm no longer saving money. And so I don't always think that cheaper is always better. I think there are times it is, but in a situation like mine where it's like, oh, you get so excited about this deal and then and then one thing leads to another and then all of a sudden it's like, well, actually, no, it's this instead of that. That's where you can kind of get a little bit deflated, guys, and be like, well, now what am I doing? And you're going to have to go back to Rogers with your tail between your legs and say, well, actually, I tried this, and now i got to come back. And they said, no, no, we can't try. (laughs) And, and Grant, you're always wondering, is it just a way so you don't have to be fair? You don't have to treat me with that respect because you've got the out clause, whether it's someone's credit, whether it's – you know, oh, well, it's not the Tuesday that we're offering this. Sorry, this is a Friday. Get out of here. Um, you get so frustrated because when you stop and say, well, how did it get to this way? How how come we in this country are doing this when we are a progressive country and we know this is what's going on? And, and again, it's that whole fact of, well, we don't have the reason to, to cut it until someone says, cut it. I, I, yeah. I just think... Yeah, I just think that the provider, I just think that the provider from the beginning should let you know of the entire process before they're going to, they're going to say to you at the very end, no, we can't do this because of this reason or that reason. I think they should, when they write down the number, they should be like, this is what's going to happen. Can we go through with this before they get you all excited about here's a new flashy phone and all this and you can almost have it. But then something at the very end makes them pull it out of your hand basically yeah yeah it's definitely the contrast between like the flashy marketing stuff or whatever and the quickly like okay just sign here yeah. on this document at yeah the we end. want like, your business like, not we don't yeah, want to like, find the out clause to keep you from here but like hang on a second let me just review this 10 page document really quickly yeah um, exactly there, there, yeah there's an interesting uh, yeah let me go on the back here and see how I can, uh, you know, fix it so you don't get this. Grant, thanks a lot, pal. Wonderful stuff. Have a All great right. weekend. 
All right. Have a fantastic weekend. Thank you, guys. Grant Hardy joins us on Fridays for Lifestyle. Wednesday for Health Headlines. Coming up next on the program, a screenless smartphone is here. But what does that mean? Brock and I are wondering. We're going to find out. John Beeler joins us from out west as well. We'll see what he's got for us and information on this in two minutes on Kelly and Company. Going back to our uh, baseball chat for a moment with Brock before we uh, bring John in, I, I, I got to ask you, so did it matter who Houston was playing? I mean, we knew they were going to be in the playoffs, into the World Series and so on. Did it matter or would you have ne- would you have never, ever, ever rooted for them? Um, no, I don't think it mattered. I I can sort of understand that they've done the things that they need to do, the overhaul. I would like to see somebody else other than the big giants, you know, the Yankees, the Astros, the Dodgers win the World Series. Give it to somebody else who you may not expect to win the World Series. So that's why I kind of have a little bit more of a rooting interest with Philly. Okay. Was there a team you were rooting for other than the Jays uh, once they went out? Um, No, I, I once the Jays got eliminated, I kind of thought the story was you know Seattle I thought if if they could get kind of pushed through that would be cool but I also had to get past my bitterness as a fan of like well you put out my Jays why should I root for you but I <laughs> I, I like I like their team as well so yeah. I think for me it's just I want to see somebody else and this goes for all sports I want to see somebody else other than your regular expected championship winners to win sports I, I like that Brock's TV almost got put out folks that was the issue he almost said that's enough of this off it goes. Folks, uh, let's check in with John Beeler. Uh, we have our weekly app update at this time. John, welcome back. How are things? Things are great. How are you? All right. Been a bit, sir. Nice, to, uh, nice of course, to have you on the show. And what a lineup of interesting topics today, I will say, sir. First of all, the one that has most of us just sort of spinning our heads, wondering, what the heck is this? A screenless smartphone is here. But what does that even mean? Yeah, this is a really interesting product from a company called Manu. If you go to mymanu, M-A-N-U.com, they're taking pre-orders for this new device that will be available early next year. And essentially what it is, it's a set of um, uh, earbuds that are wired to a little thing you put around your neck that has a couple little sort of pods on it. And essentially, it's a smartphone that has an eSIM, so you don't actually have a physical SIM card. And it's really meant for just doing voice-controlled things. So you can take and receive calls, dictate messages. You can set up a streaming service, that kind of thing. So you can have your your music playing uh, or probably even local audio files as well. I couldn't find a lot of information about it because it's still very early in, in this thing. But it's also incredibly cheap. It's only about $207 Canadian. And it is also waterproof. There's no screen to break. Uh, I bet the battery life lasts forever because oh, you're not powering the screen. Mm-mm. And I just think it's a really interesting sort of take. The way they've marketed it is for people that are on the go, not necessarily for uh, vision impaired folks, but it's, it seems like a really good fit for that audience. It almost seems like just that hands-free ability to use it. It's like a cross between a smart speaker 
um, and communication device or the communication device part of, of what we classes our existing phones, whether you're telling it to make a call or just telling it to play so-and-so from TuneIn or something like that. Of course, Kelly and Company on AMI-audio. Um, if you did something like that and having that ability to just do that or simply saying, hey, what's the weather? So whatever yeah. you know the the keyword, um, and have it not be tripped while you're out moving around all the time and stuff like that. That's what sounds like something a lot of people. I mean, I don't think people want to have a phone, have this device necessarily, but I I bet you lots of people will do that and just basically uh, until you can tie it into your phone, of course. Yeah, the other thing that they're sort of um, hyping with this particular product is that this could be a really good travel companion when you're traveling to, say, another country. Right. Because it's got the eSIM, it's very easy to get a localized SIM card with service. And it actually has a built-in app called MyJuno that can do um, speech-to-speech and speech-to-text functionality in over 30 different languages. Nice. That's what I was thinking, too. What a way to be able to you know, uh, deal with people if you speak two different, you know, you speak a language, they speak, and get some interpretations done. Did, did it say anything about the other apps that are going to be native to it? No, unfortunately it doesn't. And it doesn't even clearly state anywhere that I can find what's powering this. I'm assuming it's mm-hmm. an Android device of some kind because that's typical for this type of thing. Um, but it is, it's a really intriguing product. I'm going to see if I can get one in for review and check it out. Nice. That's really nice. Excited to hear more about this. Your next topic is if you've lost something, you can search through 91.7 million files from the 80s, 90s, and 2000s. Yeah. Do you remember all those uh, floppy disks and CD-ROMs that came with magazines back in the day? Or maybe it came with a printer that you got and you're trying to set that up You know, years later, trying to track down all those files. Well, somebody uh, has basically organized all of this stuff, and it's basically uh, user-contributed content. So every floppy and CD-ROM that they could find, and actually since this article was published that I'm basing our our segment on, uh, it's actually grown to about 93 million files. And they've created a really interesting search engine that's super low-tech, specifically for the fact that There's a lot of people nowadays that are taking some of this older technology, they're trying to recycle it or just relive some nostalgia, and some of these things are actually able to go online, like an old Commodore 64 or an Atari computer, those kinds of things. Like That's the vintage I'm talking about here. And this website will actually work on those computers. So you can actually search for files, download them right in your browser on those devices, and then access those files. And even within your browser, say there's some old music file or a clip art or something like that, the, this particular website can even show that up and it'll, it'll work on literally every kind of computer you can imagine. And so this is all stuff that's, you know, been given from finding like disks, old disks like that, like it's all person-centered? Yeah, it, it's, um, it's, an off, it's an unofficial offshoot of the um, uh, Internet Archive. And it's actually the archivist that sort of is um, behind the Internet Archive is the one sort of championing this as a side project. And so this is literally every kind of thing you can imagine that would have been a pack-in or a bundle with most things. So, um, But they found a really good way to organize it all, and you can actually find things. Unlike just Googling for something and hoping you're going to find someone that has a blog post about it from 10 years ago, um, they've actually built a website that sort of really understands the reasons why you're trying to do this and helps you find it very quickly. 
that's quite the side job to be, you know, uh, building this and all these files. Like I, you know, I, I can't think of something off the top of my head where I'd be like, if I could find this from, you know, back when I was younger, I would. Is there something for you? Like if you could think back, it's like, oh, I wish I could find this. For you, what would well, that be? Some of the things that I was looking for that are really interesting to find, like I used to run a BBS back in the day, and I'm really aging myself here. Um, but they actually have a lot of the BBS files for these older computers. Things like really obscure fonts from old computer systems and uh, even shareware from magazines and things like that that would have come out 20 years ago. Uh, you can find all that stuff here. Wow, that's so cool. It would be kind of cool just to sift through the website and say, what can I find here that was, you know, be a little bit nostalgic and, and sift through it. It'd be, it'd be really cool given so many, you know, different decades that you can search through. Mm. Very cool. Yeah. Uh, I'm sitting there as you talk about aging yourself. We were talking the other day about uh, getting on the Apple uh, 2Es, my first computer. And I remember being taught on CompuServe, uh, the first thing that kind of remotely allowed us to look at uh, news stuff. So that that's amazing. Um, want to talk about our friends over at Meh for a few moments here. They have developed a new way for people to connect through language using AI. Yeah, this this sort of furthers the conversation we were having earlier about <clears throat> translation services. And one of the challenges that um, translation services have, or apps, if you will, is they're typically only good for text-based languages. Right. Um, but there's actually a language that's kind of famous that's primarily used in Taiwan. Uh, it's a Chinese language called Hokkien, and it's an oral language. It's not written. So... Meta decided to figure out a way to actually translate that in a speech-to-speech -speech translation module that doesn't actually have any text as reference data. Mm. So this is considered to be a fairly big step in the sort of artificial intelligence realm of being able to translate some of these languages that, you know, would be lost to the ages if it wasn't for someone that's still speaking it, especially if it's not something that's written down. Wow. Well, and we've, We've heard about, of course, if people aren't really talking, if there's a, a small number of people, like you say, if it's not written down and you're decreasing numbers of people chatting, especially indigenous languages, this would be very interesting to see how something like this could help preserve. Absolutely, because it essentially creates a data set for something that never had a data set before yeah. by just having people using it. Um, unfortunately, right now, it's only limited to this language to English, but they're hoping that the more times people use it, the more data they can get and actually help translate that to other languages so that you don't actually have to go from this language to English to something else. It's a phenomenal way to think about the fact that so much, th and again, we get this a lot with um, slang terminology, especially stuff, uh, and as a fan of old-time radio, I've mentioned this before on the show, and we, we have so many references to things that come out of years and years ago, even the last century or the century before, and we have no idea. All of us think, oh, that's uh, something new. <laughs> no, it's something that's been said over and over, generation after generation, but we sort of change somewhat of the context to it to have the AI even work with stuff like that where you you know if you you were you were thinking of someone saying that in the in the 40s that it means yeah. this versus when it was said or that terminology used in the 90s uh, or just the reference back yeah the context is hugely important especially when you look at things like regional dialects even even the english language is so weird that way 
And for these translation services to actually understand the nuances between a regional difference of someone speaking English, say, in Newfoundland versus someone yes. speaking English in B.C., yeah, and, and it is really fascinating because we talk about Quebec French versus Parisian French and, and just the way things are, are different. But when you talk about something that's never written down, and, and I go back to the Indigenous languages that I know some people are trying to keep alive, um, and you know there isn't any literature, there's no books, there's nothing except those who remember or households, which may have been far and few between, where mom and dad said, well, we're going to still speak this in this household no matter what, because we don't want it to die, the language. Yeah, I hope Meta can reach out to those folks and and get them into the system. That would be amazing. Like, And I'm sure so many would love to do it. I've heard of courses now going on where they're teaching it, and I think that would be that would be pretty amazing. Some really great stuff. Uh, would you uh, would you get after those uh, headsets, John? Is that something like you say you want to get one to test out? But do you foresee this going far? I hope so. I think I think a lot of people um, really want something less obtrusive. Even if you're sighted, it's 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 something that a lot of people have anxiety and um, stress over looking at their notifications or other mm. things like that. So having a screenless device, I think, could benefit a lot of people. Yeah, and, you know, so many people now are comfortable, as we say, listening to podcasts, listening to audiobooks. It's not like it was 20 years ago where people could ask me, hey, what are you doing? Or what did you do last night? Oh, I listened to a book. You know, it did what? You know, now <laughs> everybody does it. Yeah. Awesome, sir. Thanks a lot. We'll talk to you next week. Sounds great. John Beeler, of course, with our app update. We do this on Fridays to kind of give you some ideas of things going on out there, some of the neat toys that may be coming down for us. We're just having some times warnings. Today was great. No warnings. Everybody's behaving themselves for at least this 24-hour period. He'll be back next Friday for our weekly uh, app update here on Kelly and Company. Brock and I will step aside for a couple of moments on the program, and when we return, this is something Brock totally can relate to. As a matter of fact... Talked about on the neutral zone very recently, the Paratuff Cup is the flagship fundraiser uh, for the Paralympic Foundation of Canada. We learn more about this unique event where you can try out parasport and meet para-athletes after this. get in these conversations during the break and Richardson just stole it away ladies and gentlemen just absolutely stole the day on me here because I was laughing at the fact that I mentioned the John Beeler as I've mentioned here oh my first computer was an Apple IIe <laughs> when we were talking about dating ourselves and Richardson of course sits back and says well I am old enough to remember dial up whoa are you ever some ass I remember Anyway, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to Kelly and Company. Brock Richardson joining us. He is the host of the Neutral Zone. You can check their program out via YouTube or download the Neutral Zone podcast or catch it here on AMI-audio Tuesdays at 11 a.m. in the morning. He's uh, uh, co-hosting with me today on the program, filling in for Ramya Muthan. Um, Brock, yeah, th those that was a total steal-life-away moment, so I appreciate yeah. that, pal. 
Yeah, I, I, Matt, Matt used to tease me because I always come out with those comments right before the technical producer's like, we're going back, and then the person doesn't have a chance to respond until on the air. So, Oh, I, well, I always to. have a chance. Starting the beginning of the segment, Kelly always uh, has a moment uh, to bring up those kinds of things. <laughs> yes. Well, uh, the Paratuff Cup is a flagship fundraiser for the Paralympic Foundation of Canada a unique event where registered teams can try out para-sports and meet Paralympians and athletes in general, while raising money to support athletes with a disability. The uh, the Paralympic Foundation of Canada hosted its first para-tough cup with eight teams, and they raised over $70,000 at this event. So we're pleased to be joined by Dean Brokop, who is going to be telling us about that event and moving towards Montreal. Dean, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. And um, I might add, my first computer was a Commodore 64. So uh, I tell you (laughs) that very proudly. (laughs) (laughs) I remember playing around with those too. And uh, it was uh, laying on the floor, looking at it and everybody, hey, what are you doing? I'm just playing with the computer, just gaming. That's it. That's it. Long time ago. Well, well, Dean, you've been on this program and on the Neutral Zone recently, so it's nice to have you back. Could you start with the history and some of the milestones of the Paratuff Cup, if you would? Yeah, for sure. So the Paratuff Cup started way back in 2017. It feels way back. Um, And really, it was created um, as as an opportunity to allow people to get to know Parasport better. And so that first event was was held way back in in 2017 in Toronto, um, and was a huge success. It raised over a hundred thousand dollars, and um, essentially it's a, an afternoon of, of para sport, corporate corporate engagement, the ability for corporate teams of six people to come out and participate in in uh, sports like wheelchair basketball and sitting volleyball and a variety of others. And when we did that first event, uh, people left just thrilled, excited, uh, sore, tired, and with the realization that um, just how great Parasport is. So so we took that, used it as a launching pad, and, and created an event series uh, that grew to include events in uh, Vancouver and Calgary uh, and Montreal, in addition to Toronto. So um, we, were, uh, we were going like gangbusters uh, up until March of 2020. And um, our last event uh, was held on March the 5th, 2020, just pretty much a week before uh, things really shut down across much of the country. Um, that that event put us over the $1 million mark in terms of funds raised through the Paratuff Cup, uh, which was super exciting. But for obvious reasons, we, uh, we had to take a step back for the last couple of years. Uh, but as Brock said, we uh, we were back last week. Actually, this a week ago today, we were in Vancouver for the Vancouver Paratuff, uh, Paratuff Cup as our first event back. It was, uh, again, a huge success, uh, raised uh, about $70,000. And uh, and people, you know, it, it was it was fantastic um, to be out there and to be with people again and to see um, just how impactful Parasport can be, both to participate in it and uh, and to observe it. Dean, we um, when you look at the value of something, you can say, "Hey, look, financially, this is what what the gain is." But we know all of us being involved with any disability events, 
sport or whatever it might be, technology events, anything that promotes awareness to us is so valuable. Uh, and I, I'm not going to suggest that it's less valuable for uh, able-bodied, if you want to say that, or, or non-disabled um, events or, or activities. And I, I'm talking on a wide, wide scale there. But there's that level of getting these corporate people involved to raise funds. But that awareness is so tremendously important of feeling those experiences such as, my God, I'm sore after trying that. Or, hey, I, I, I'm going to go back and tell the guys at the office about this, that I did this and that is how has been the feedback and how has that helped Parasport grow? Yeah. You know what? You, you nailed it there. And the, the money is great and the money does a lot of wonderful things, but it's the rest of it that is even more important. Um, and I saw it last week again, when we do, we do a, a three sport activities, but we also have added what we call a fireside chat. So in one of the, one of the activations, people get to sit down um, up close and personal with a panel of Paralympians and, and listen to them for 30, 40 minutes, tell some stories of, of their life, their sporting careers. And that for me um, really told me just how important this event is because I watched this group of people um, sit there captivated for those 30, 40 minutes, nobody on their phones, um, completely and utterly um, captivated by by the stories that people like Richard Peter, you know, five-time Paralympian, multi-medalist, and his wife, Marnie Abbott Peter, the, having them tell stories. And then to hear from from a young young man, a young 15-year-old, call him a gentleman, um, Matteo Pelizzari, who's who's now on the, the National Para Ice Hockey team, um, and and to even to hear his stories as someone who as a as a five year old or four or five year old first got introduced to to sledge hockey to para ice hockey, and how he's grown, how he learned from um, from great Paralympians like like Greg West like before him, and and is now you know following um, following in his footsteps. So uh, it, it's it's so it's so heartening to see that and. Really excited to be heading to Montreal next week, uh, where where we have a sold out event with 16, 16 teams, and uh, really looking forward to that. And so, what exactly can we look forward to in regards to Montreal and the Paratuff Cup? Yeah, so we've got um, we've got wheelchair basketball, sitting volleyball happening. Um, we don't have access to ice the same way that we did in Vancouver at the at the Richmond Oval. Um, so we uh, we modified a bit, and we have we have access to um, to pair ice hockey sleds on wheels, and so we're able to provide a, a similar experience to people to to be able to get in a sled, get that feeling and get those sore arms and shoulders as they propel themselves <laughs> uh, across the gym. And, and I'll tell you, it was the, the feedback from the people in Vancouver, because we did do para ice hockey on ice in Vancouver. And that was the event that, that people said um, um, moved them the most, surprised them the most, because it actually looks easy when, you, when you're watching it, when you're yes. watching these experts um, you know, glide around the ice. It looks pretty effortless. Uh, people quickly find out that no, it's far from that. That, that they're they're on beginner sleds with with um, with two blades, <laughs> while the experts are on a single blade bombing around. So I think that left people with a real great appreciation, and ultimately that that goes a long way in in helping people people realize, you know, these these athletes are uh, are athletes. 
and they're incredible athletes to do what they do. And so it gives them that great appreciation for it. Um, and it's, it's also fun. So to be able to put people in a sled to play uh, a pair of ice hockey, to put them in a wheelchair and play wheelchair basketball, they realize just how fun it is. And and what we're doing is creating more fans um, uh, for, for the games and for Parasport as it continues to develop. Yeah, that's what I love. The fact, too, that the viewing of it is more accessible to people. And I remember what you're talking about, the experience. We, we When I was a kid and at the blind school in Brantford, Wayne Gretzky used to stop in mm. when he first started out in the NHL, and we, we got him to try goalball one day. And he, he <laughs> was flopping all over the floor, cursing to himself, but giving it a shot. And it was just tremendous because there's an athlete, like you said, here are people trying something out. But I know for him, it gave him such an awareness to be a part of it, to try it. Before we let you go, can you tell us quickly, what is the criterion you guys look for for these teams that say these businesses, corporations, whoever wants to say, I want, we want to try it out. What, what should, do you tell them first and how do they get registered? Yeah, well, paratoughcup.ca, we've got a website specific to the event. So there's uh, all the information uh, for the events are available there. There's actually a video as well, uh, a nice short video that gives a, gives a great snapshot of the event. And, and really, we welcome anybody. You know, it's, there, there's a participation fee that that uh, the teams have to either pay or fundraise or a combination of both. We have fun with the fundraising aspect of this in that we 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 really make that a competitive element of it and offer incentives to to individuals that fundraise. Um, and because really, that's you know that's the backbone of this. So um, yeah, so companies, a group of individuals. Uh, you name it, we we are we are happy to welcome any any group of six uh, who wants to give it a go. Dean, it's uh, it's such a pleasure, you know, talking para sports all the time, and events like this is really what pushes, you know, the awareness out and more forward. Certainly, so we appreciate the work that you're doing at the uh, Canadian Paralympic. Found the Paralympic Foundation of Canada, excuse me, and appreciate you taking the time to do this interview. We always appreciate talking to you. Absolutely. Thanks for having me on, guys. I appreciate it. That was Dean Brokop, director of the Paralympic Foundation of Canada, talking to us about the Paratough Cup. And Kelly, for me, that's this is an event that I love. We've had him on the neutral zone when it first came out. We had him on the neutral zone recently. And you know, Great work being done uh, all around in conjunction with the Canadian Paralympic Committee. Well, he's been a tremendous friend of all the shows in the sense of getting him on and talking about it, watching the evolution of it. And I always love when I hear about the athletes getting that opportunity to talk to people, whether it's somebody aspiring to do it, whether it's the young folks, or the older people who are experienced, or and somebody just saying, oh, I don't know, I don't know if this is for me, um, but let alone getting the corporations and people to try things out because that's the best way to understand something. Give it a kick. Folks, Brock and I will just step aside to get ready for hour number two on the program. We're going to listen back to a chatty bookshelf conversation with Ryan Huey. Plus, it's story time for the Friday before Halloween. We hear paranormal experiences accounted back to you by members of our team. But up next, Bill Shackleton, he'll stop in for the Friday bus. More great talk, more fun, and more of Kelly and Company coming up after the break.
In Canada, look for uh, AMI-audio right from your TV, folks. T-Bay-Tel, IPTV, channel 1112 is where you can find the audio of AMI-audio. And Bell Alliant, channel 66. Visit AMI.ca slash audio for a list of channel locations in your area. Welcome back to Kelly and Company. It's the second hour of the program. Brock Richardson is sitting in here with me today. He's at the home studio in Kitchener. I, Kelly McDonald, at the home studio, London, Ontario. Bill Shackleton now uh, here for the uh, third edition of the week. Commenting on your article about the Iranian guy that hadn't washed in 50 years. Very oh, interesting. Oh, goodness. Uh, um, and, you know, one of the things that, 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 I, that caught me my, is that apparently he didn't have a family. Which is fine, but if he did, wouldn't you get used? They get used to the smell. I mean, you, well, you wonder... would think so, right? You would think people, and again, people who probably knew him, got used to you know that odor and and what have you. What we were kind of talking about on the show is, what does that seal in in your skin? How does your pores breathe? And things that are actually health related. Look, I mean, hey, if you you don't have to be near the guy, uh, or you stay down, you know, if you have to be downwind of him, you could be in a bit of a problem. If you know you, that kind of thing. But I would think people used to the gentleman, that wasn't such an issue. But I think, wow, how does your pores breathe? What health? I mean, you know, Bill, we often hear if someone's using uh, antibacterial toothpaste and so on, or too many things like that, that's not healthy for you either when it comes to sickness. Um, yeah. But it shouldn't be like, you know, picking up things off the floor, not to suggest this guy was. We're talking the man never bathed. And there was things that, you know, pipe, his pipe, his smoking, what he smoked and stuff like that. And things that, that these guys, uh, you know, have to do that you stop and say, oh, my goodness, that's not healthy for you. Um, but one would argue simply, what are you talking about not healthy? The man lived till he was 94 or whatever it was. It's just phenomenal yeah. when you think about how do you argue that, right? When the proof is there, yeah, but he's still here. I can go on and on about how do your pores breathe? Well, obviously, somehow his did. Very interesting, yeah. uh, which is something we spoke about earlier in the week on the program, folks. Yeah. Um, we're, I'm going to talk about something that's 50 years. <clears throat> it's 50 years at the White House for Dale Haney and his green thumb. So coming from the Associated Press, so a, a, a different dirt to dig into. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, I'm sure he's washed. Um, uh, yeah, I would think at the White House, yeah, I don't think he'd have a choice. They'd turn the hose on him, his own hose. Yeah. <clears throat> well, 50, as they say, 10 presidencies. And, you know, presidents do come and go. But the one consistency has been Dale Haney, who is basically the chief gardener or the chief grounds crewman, um, a guy that is in charge of hundreds of shrubs, roses, trees, basically maintaining the, you know, the the the, the gardens, and he he's basically best remembered remembered for his looking after the president's pets. And basically, he is seen walking Joe Biden's dog. And when you think about a career, maybe two years, but 50 years, I mean, there could have been any number of reasons why any president would perhaps let him go. Maybe they didn't like him. Maybe they didn't like his style. I mean, parties come and go, but he's been able to hang around. Um, history. You you know this guy has seen 
when President Nixon left the White House after he was impeached. Right, Watergate. Um, yeah, Watergate. And, you know, when, when, when the White House was evacuated after 9-11, I mean, this guy's seen it all. Yeah, yeah, Reagan shooting. Um, and when yeah. you think about... Well, what I think about, just going back to his work alone, the preferences of the presidents, um, the first ladies, uh, what, what, you know, what his job is, how he does his job, uh, what those gardens look like, or, or whomever sets the standard for how they want it, or how much they allow him to say, well, no, those are, the, those are the, the perennials I wish to have in here this year. This is what I wanted, you know, whatever it might be. How much of that does he get, Brock, you know, or, or how much dictating to does he have to tolerate? Yeah, I, you know, you, you just never know. And it's really fascinating when you think of that he's been around for, you know, so long. I, I started to think, you know, to myself as as Bill was was putting this out there, you know, it's amazing that he's lasted so long. Yes, but I would also argue that one of the reasons he's lasted as long as he has is because of his one, his relationships with everybody that he's obviously had to keep up. Two, is that who, no one now at this point would, would want to be the president that would come in and say, yeah, I don't like you as the gardener, so I'm going to be the one that's going to break this 50-plus year tradition. At a certain point, it becomes historic and nobody wants to touch it. And so to me, I think it speaks to his longevity and the relationships he's obviously and clearly built. Trying to cheat me out of my pension, are you? That's what I would say if I were him, if that was what they tried <laughs> to do. I don't like the way you do this work. Might have to let you go. Might have to sue you. Uh, really interesting, though, eh, Shaq? Well, I think one of the things that the, the, the toughest thing of a, at, at that kind of a job would be to adapt to the different, as you say, the different um, presidents. Maybe the first lady said, I want this done. Well, I don't think it should be done. Well, this is the way I want it done. Otherwise, you're fired. Yeah. <clears throat> so I'd it, like it to think those conversations didn't happen. But, <laughs> you know, there is preference. There is belief. And you, there has to be presidents or first ladies that have, have assumed the positions who really are, uh, consider themselves good in the garden with their own green thumb. So I, it would be amazing how he gained the confidence or if he just sort of went with the flow. Yeah. Nice. Sir, what's your next one? Next one. Feed his soul, his senses, and his tummy. Ailing Manitoba pooch living out his bucket list. This is actually from Global News. I like this one. So an 11-year-old husky um, is living out a bucket list. And of course, we all, some of us have, do have bucket lists that we want to do. So the owner of this dog, who has cancer, has decided that she would that they were going to create a bucket list for the dog. So this, they include stealing a piece of meat, in this case a steak, which is what all dogs probably do, um, frolicking in the snow. Now, of course, because they don't know how long he's going to be around, where are you going to get snow? Well, they've actually, you know how the Zambonis clear the snow off the rinks before they, they play hockey games? So basically, they've compiled the snow off the hockey rinks so the dog can frolic in the snow, which is kind of nice. They, the other one is riding a Jeep with no roof. Well, the dog did that. And, of course, the coup de grass is 
appearing live on global TV. So it's it's very interesting and nice that they've they've created a bucket list for this dog who isn't going to be around much longer, but he is going to experience some of the things that and you know that that, that other dogs do and some of the things that that some of the dogs some dogs will never do. That's really cool. You know, you never would think that a bucket list would be created for a dog. That's yeah. You know, that's who who would? Yeah, I we were watching. I was watching a show uh, this week about a dog, and it actually spoke about the dog being twenty years old that the, the oh, vet was boy. taking care of. And I had to rewind it a few times because I'm like, did, did I hear that right? But but yeah, to have to have a bucket list for a dog. I mean, we all have them, as you mentioned. But you know, I I love the one about appearing on Global News. I think that's yeah, that's kind of cute and humorous all at the same time. Right. Number three? Yeah, let's continue on. Woman sues over um, over feeding the homeless in Arizona. So essentially what's happening is, and this is a stupid article in a way, she's been arrested for feeding the homeless out of her own van. And she is suing what? because, yeah, she's suing because... Uh, she feels that she should be allowed to do that. Now, anybody in his right mind would know you cannot feed the homeless from your own van or your own food. You never know what could break out. You never know whether you bought it or whether you made it. You just never know what kind of, you know, disease might be in there or, uh, you know, food poisoning, whatever. So it's kind of, you know, I mean, get a grip, woman. Really? Yeah, it's true. You you never do know what is uh, what's happening or what's going on, and and you know, there's all this you know, food temperature being safe. You know, uh, making sure that things are well. And I don't know, Bill. I'm not sure I would take much out of somebody's van without asking a lot uh. of questions, like <laughs> when was this made? What do you? You know, all of that being said, Bill. Yeah, I would never do it. And to think that, that you'd be able to sue for that is just you know, unbelievable. And I can't really see that a lawsuit will go very far. No, but you I you can't. never do know. You never do know what they might be able to pull out. But uh, this does not scream to me as uh, as the lawsuit would go very far at all. No, not at all. No, it gets kind of interesting with um, wh- where we can go or where we feel we can go when it comes to, to lawsuits and, and things like that. Shaq, wonderful. Thank you very much. Uh, thanks very much. We're back again. Yeah, we'll talk to you next week on the program. Bill Shackleton joining us uh, at this time as he does Wednesday through Friday on the program for The Buzz with Bill. We remind you to check out the best of The Buzz with Bill uh, if you look for the podcast uh, under AMI Exclusives, you can check those out, uh, put together, and it's some of the uh, the best segments that, that, that he's brought on, the best items to talk about here on the program. So, uh, We are going to look in the archives, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, Ryan Huey is unavailable for us today on the program. So 
what better thing to do than always go back and take a look? So after the break, we'll do that. And we get a chance to uh, hear him in one of what I think is one of the best interviews he's done. It's just got so many cool things in it. So do join us for that as we relive it in just a moment on the Chatty Bookshelf right here on Kelly and Company. When you have a chance, subscribe using your favorite podcast platform to The Kelly and Company Show. Appreciate if you did that. Just look us up there. uh, Do a search. You'll find us. Kelly and Company. We're here weekdays from 2 to 4 p.m. Eastern with a repeat at uh, 10 p.m. Eastern. But you may want to listen to the show in segment form. You can do that along our podcast feed or... Listen to the complete Kelly and Company podcast experience where we toss on an audio vanity card right on the end there. We've got a lot of programming still ahead, but we're going to take a a step back. Uh, Ryan Huey is not available to join Brock and I on the program today. So let's listen back to a conversation that Ryan had. Uh, This is from July 15th of this year, uh, and it's the uh, writer of the story, Wake Me Up After the Apocalypse. This is an interview with Jordan Rivett. Today you got a very special guest on the segment. Please fill us in. Yes, I'm really, really excited about this. Um, this was really cool. It's been a few months in the making, and uh, as always, we love bringing on authors. We love bringing on narrators. So if you guys have any suggestions for us, um, you know, feel free to get at me on social media because that would be the best way. But all the way from Hong Kong, one of my favorite authors. Her uh, work can be classified as fantasy, post-apocalyptic, you know, right in my wheelhouse. Uh, author Jordan Rivett joined us earlier this week, uh, and we got to record an interview and get her thoughts on some of uh, the writing process and some of her work. So I'm really excited for you guys to share this and uh, and hear her kind of story and everything. Awesome. Let's get into it. So how did you start off with your writing career? How did you kind of get into it? Well, I've always loved books, which I think is the most important thing for all of us here. Um, and I knew that I wanted to work with books. So I thought maybe I would want to be an editor at a publishing house or something along those lines, because I really didn't think that I had my own stories to tell. Um, but then through a series of complicated circumstances, I ended up moving to Hong Kong. And while I was there living in this new and really interesting place, uh, I started writing just to process my experiences. So I actually dabbled with a little bit of travel writing. Um, And I think that through that process, I actually learned a lot of skills that ended up being helpful later on when I started writing science fiction and fantasy. But it took me a little while to first realize that I actually enjoyed writing and then kind of find my way back to writing the kind of books that I really love to read, which are science fiction and fantasy. Um, So what happened was I ended up participating in National Novel Writing Month, where the challenge is to write 50,000 words in one month. Um, And that kind of helped me to get out of my own way and just write and write and write and have fun with the story rather than worrying too much about how it was going to turn out. And that was really the turning point. After then, I I never looked back. Um, And I've been writing basically full time ever since. That's actually really amazing. So would you say your first love is writing the travel stuff or is it, you know, like me where it's the the fantasy post-apocalyptic, that sort of stuff, because I love your work when it comes to that stuff. Oh, it's definitely the fantasy and post-apocalyptic uh, because that's what I love as a reader. And I, they always say to write what you 
love. Um, and I, I think I had to actually do it for myself and kind of trick myself into actually doing it before taking the advice that, of course, everybody always would have given me anyway. Um, so it was a useful skill, I think, to try the travel writing, but I'm having so much more fun writing science fiction and fantasy. I love the world building aspect to it. Uh, I love that I can put my characters in mortal peril in a way that um, might be a little bit less realistic in uh, modern contemporary fiction or, or nonfiction about travel and that sort of thing. Um, so I'm actually having a blast uh, doing what I'm doing. And I probably should have realized that the kinds of books that I love as a kid, you know, are the kinds of books that I now write. It definitely shows in your work. Um, I love it. And I've, I've devoured uh, a few of your series. But uh, how do you know if you're writing kind of a standalone or, a, I guess, a series um, kind of thing, a trilogy or, or something along those lines? Yeah, I think that I kind of have to try out an idea for a little while before I know for sure whether it has enough potential. Um, because some ideas might feel smaller. But then as I work on them, and as I get a little bit further into the idea, the world kind of grows around whatever the initial idea was. So the more that the idea grows, the more I can pay attention to whether or not I think I can tell more stories in that same world after I finish the first one. So I find that I usually don't know for sure whether a book is going to be a series until I've done at least the rough draft of book one. And for me, I usually do four or five drafts of every book, even before it goes to the editor. And so usually I will be partway into, into number one before I sit down and say, okay, I think that I can, I can do more with this and I can figure out what else is going to happen in this world. So usually once I finish that draft, I will plan out, even if it's just a couple of sentences, what the later books in the series will be like. So it's kind of a discovery process. Uh, it's such amazing, yeah, to hear that it's, you know, maybe a game time decision, but uh, I, I do, I have to say, I love the series, Wake Me After the Apocalypse. It's one of my favorites. Um, I, every time I see an email where something new is coming out in the series, I get really, really excited. But where did that idea come from, if you don't mind me asking? Oh, yeah. Well, thank you so much, first of all. that It means a lot to hear that, actually. Um, for that one, I think I had, I usually kind of walk around knowing that I'm looking for a certain type of idea for a while before I actually get the idea. So with that, as an early writer, I felt like I struggled with really getting into the action quickly with stories, and I wanted to get better at that. So I thought, okay, well, I want a story that can really start right in the thick of things. Um, and then the other influences that I just really love 90s disaster movies like Deep Impact and Armageddon and things like that that were coming out when I was a kid, and I just, I just like those kinds of stories. Um, so I had all of that basically kicking around in my head for, for a month or so. And then one day I just walked onto the train, uh, we call it the MTR, the subway train here in Hong Kong. And the idea was just boom, right there, fully formed. Um, the, the premise for those who don't know, um, is that it's about a girl who wakes up in a cryosleep bunker after having been in cryosleep, um, for a certain number of years and everybody in the bunker is basically collapsed and everybody around her appears to be dead. So she has no idea what's happened. And she has to immediately, while she's in grave danger, unpack this mystery. Uh, so that was the idea that first kind of, kind of grabbed me and said, okay, well, that'll get me right into the action right away. And it'll also give me a chance to kind of unravel this mystery. And quite early on, I also had the idea for, which I won't spoil anything, but kind of the twist, the, the explanation for what had happened um, was kind of right there almost almost as soon as the initial idea was there. And that for me was what really made the idea tick and made me want to keep working on it. Um, so yeah, it was kind of like a, a combination of letting the sort of 
vague ideas percolate and then sort of a burst of inspiration when the actual, the idea really hit. No, that's amazing. And I have to say the character development is, is fantastic. I, you know, you love to hate characters and uh, you, you really love this main character in all of the books. Um, she's just one of those people that you root for. And uh, I, I loved every, every sort of situation she was in, but it must've been really, really cool to kind of see. I love, obviously I love audiobooks, but it must've been cool to see your books kind of come from, you know, work on the page to, you know, listening to it in your ear, becoming an audiobook. What did that kind of look like? And did you have a say in, you know, choosing the narrator or, or anything like that or, or what any of the processes or anything? Yeah, um, I've done it two different ways. Uh, some of my audiobooks are with an audio publisher, Tantor Media, and with them, they sent me basically two samples for two voice actors and let me choose between the two. And for both of the series that I've done with them, it was obvious immediately who was the right person to narrate those books. Um, but with Wake, Wake Me After the Apocalypse, I actually self-produced that one. So I use a platform called ACX, which allows authors and narrators to connect. So I put up a sample, a couple of short snippets of dialogue and scenes from the book and scenes with that character's voice uh, and put it up for audition. And within just a couple of days, I had 80 auditions from voice actors who wanted to work on the book, which was way more than I ever expected. So then it ended up being quite challenging to go through all of the auditions of all of these amazing voice actors who wanted to narrate the series. So some of them, some of them were a little bit easier to eliminate if they weren't quite the right match. Um, and then I ended up narrowing it down to a couple of really, really fantastic voice actors who I knew any of them, any of those actresses would have done an amazing job. Um, so I ended up choosing the one who I felt had the cadence, the same cadence that I use when I read my books in my own head, that I felt that she had the same types of inflections that I would have put if I was reading it out loud myself. Although of course I don't have the skills to do the voices or any of the other things that make an audiobook, you know, worth listening to, but I felt that she understood the sort of cadence of my, of my language of my writing. Um, so that's why I went with her. Her name is Kate Marson. Um, and I think she's done a, a great job. So it's been really fun to kind of see the different ways that that can all play out. Um, and then of course, to get to share my stories with people who prefer to prefer to listen to audio. Well, you couldn't have picked a better narrator. That's for sure. The performance is, uh, is amazing. And it really adds some some life to to the to the characters and everything. You really get to see you know how someone else sort of views the characters because I bet it was a little bit of a different viewpoint from all of your characters than what you had originally planned when you wrote them down on the paper. So I always like to to kind of see that, and then I always wonder. I wonder if this is exactly what the author wanted, or if this is something that maybe they just hadn't thought of. So it, it's really really cool to to kind of see how those types of things play out. But a question I, I always have is what, what, in your opinion, and I ask all the authors that I have on that, what, in your opinion, what is the most difficult part of writing a book? Um, for me, it's always the second draft. The first draft I will do in that sort of quick, just getting through the story style where I feel like I'm just spilling out my ideas onto the page and having a lot of fun and just kind of getting the raw material. But the second draft is when I have to actually go back and shape that into a real book uh, into something that works. So any plot problems and issues that I hadn't quite figured out in the first draft, I have to do that in the second draft and I can't, I can't just let anything slide anymore. So it often takes me as long to do the second draft as it does to do the first, because I'm really having to work that clay into, into its proper shape. And then every draft after that is all about, you know, adding details and deepening character development and those kinds of things. 
but the really tough work I think happens in that second draft. And I know this is kind of a difficult question, but speaking of the second draft, uh, you say it's the most difficult. So like what stage of the finished product is that at? Is that like 25% done? Or I know it'd be very difficult to kind of label it as that, but uh, how, how would you kind of look at it in terms like that? Yeah, um, I think for me, if I, once I finish the first draft, that's probably a, a good a good estimate that I'm 25% of the way done. And the second draft is easily another 25% of the work, maybe more, maybe the second draft by itself is 30% of the work. Um, because again, I have to, I have to fix everything that I, all the problems that I created for myself. Um, and then everything after that, it might take, it might take just as long, but it's, it's kind of an easier process. Once I have the bones, it's really getting the bones of the story into exactly the right place and shape uh, before I can do the fun stuff, which is the world building and the details and the stuff that hopefully, you know, resonates with readers. Oh, well, thank you so much for the time, Jordan. This has been wonderful. And now you're a friend of the Chatty Bookshelf, so we'll have to have you back. And uh, we'd love to have you back. Uh, really, thanks for joining us all the way from Hong Kong, giving us the time and explaining some, some things about your work and about your process. Guys, go by Wake Me After the Apocalypse, the entire series. It's fantastic. If you don't, you're doing yourself a disservice. It's available at all retailers. It's available in ebook, audiobook, and print copies. So check it out, guys. Thank you so much, Jordan, for coming on and, and sharing everything with us. And uh, we'll talk to you soon. Oh, thank you so much. It's been really great to talk to you. Wow. What a great interview. Uh, July 15th, we had that Ryan Huey with Jordan Rivet. It was really wonderful. And, and when I say that, uh, it's no reflection on previous interviews or content that Ryan has brought us with guests because they're all wonderful to listen to the conversations. But they, they were just so exciting, so fun in, in that, that interview and uh, some really, really great questions. So uh, it was a pleasure to be able to play that one again, Brock, for people to take a listen to. And, and a lot of fun when we get to actually hear authors or narrators reflected on the chatty bookshelf yeah it is and you know we always like to have our contributors uh on with us but when they're unable to it is fun to dig back in the archives and figure out which ones we can highlight and uh, get people moving towards the segment again. yeah and to sit back listen to that again you know, there's always, as you listen to something back, something you missed the first time listening to it. But uh, really great. Uh, thank them both for that. And remember, folks, Ryan Huey joins us every Friday to talk audiobooks on the segment we call The Chatty Bookshelf at this time. Coming up next when we return from the break, folks, it's story time. For the Friday before Halloween, here's what we're going to do. We're going to hear some paranormal experiences recounted from members of the Kelly and Company team. A couple of these are uh, brought in by uh, audio and called in to us. So hopefully you'll stick around. We're all going to share. I got one for you. Richardson over there, he's got something for you. And Jeff Ryman will be with us. Stay tuned. You know, we always get really busy um, this time of the year because we've got the Kelly and Company anniversary, which is uh, on Halloween. And we always love to hear the different Halloween stories. And in the days that we were in the office, you even had costumes and all sorts of stuff. So it really got busy. And guess how many jelly beans are in the jar? Always a fun thing that's just beloved by all, especially our dentists. Brock Richardson, Kelly McDonald, host of the program today. Um... 
I don't think I've ever guessed right with that kind of thing. I'm trying. I've come close, but you know, and I I do the pickup, shake it as if it's going to tell me more. I, but really, you're judging on the weight, and then you start trying to be logical about it. Well, let's see. I'll count around. It each one about this size, and then I fi- and you try to mathematically figure it out. You ever win anything like that? No, never, oh, never. No. <laughs> Especially with the smaller candies, like it's like I don't know how many are buried in here and i I, i'm not even that close usually because i'm just like ah eyeball it write this number down and who knows but no i've never been so lucky to win uh, an entire bucket of some candy which is probably good for my teeth and i'm sure that your doctor would say the same I know mine would. Uh, Folks, we do cut for time usually. So we love to suggest segments for you to go back and take a look at. But today we thought we'd make a little bit of a change up. But we are welcoming Jeff Ryman, who uh, we haven't really heard for a little while on the show. Welcome back, Jeffrey. Hey, guys. Yeah, I'm not a huge jelly bean guy. I don't think I would attempt to count the jelly beans because I just don't want to eat them if I win it. Uh, If it was chocolate, like little chocolate bars or like Hershey Kisses, then I might indulge. How about sours? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I'm a huge, uh, I love sour. Like oh, uh, those Warheads mm, and uh, Sour Patch Kids, like all those sort of sour candies. Love them. Sour like, Keys. Yes, mm. the Sour Keys are my yep, favorite yeah. uh, peaches or, or, or uh, cherry, cherry blast. Oh, yeah. I love all that. Okay, guys, here's how this is going to go. We all have some story that we'd like to share when it comes to paranormal. And this was suggested by Greg David. He had, he had something he wanted to share with us. And we thought, okay, well, let's do something with this and start to get everyone into the mood. Because probably many of you out there have Halloween parties to go to. Or you're going to be spending time with the kids this weekend decorating. So let's try to launch you off into that right direction. So first, Greg's going to talk to us uh, about a paranormal experience that he would like to share with us to help start get you in the mood, but also others out there, you are either a believer in this kind of thing, you've either had an experience, or kind of that, mm, yeah, I think what really happened was this. Uh, let's start with Greg David. I've never forgotten this. This um, this experience that I had goes back to 2010, when my partner and I visited uh, Gettysburg, Pennsylvania, and um, a little bit of history, of course, is that the Battle of Gettysburg in Gettysburg, Pennsylvania, took place during uh, the Civil War. It was fought from July 1st to 3rd in 1863. And uh, we'd gone down to Gettysburg because we obviously wanted to take a tour of the, the Battle of Gettysburg site. And um, we at the time, we booked a B&B for a couple of nights. And um, the B&B is called the Balladary Inn. And during the time of the during the battle of gettysburg it was used as a hospital and i can't remember if it was union soldiers that were there or confederate soldiers that were there i i feel like it might have been um union soldiers that that were were taken care of and and um you know were patients there during the battle of gettysburg and of course with that whole you know history of that area you know you would think that there were probably a lot of um ghosts and spirits and you know malevolent things you know kind of traipsing around and so uh, the Balladary Inn was really, really nice, and we had booked it for, uh, like I said, uh, two nights, and uh, we're very excited to stay there because it was very, you know, historical as well. Like I said, it served as a hospital, uh, though it was a working farm at the time. Uh, the buildings in the area were all called in to be, you know, meeting spaces and hospitals. So anyway, we book in, we booked this room, and um, it was the garden room, and it was in the main house. There's a main building, and then there was a car- there's a carriage house as well, and um, so we booked the room, 
And, uh, you know, it was nice, um, you know, a little bit, you know, a little bit country, a little bit country style with roosters and chickens and things like that, you know, little statues and things like that in the room. So, you know, a little bit tacky, but also kind of cool. Um, and but I had this weird feeling the entire time, uh, you know, kind of when we first walked into the room, there was a bit of a weird vibe. And I really couldn't put, you know, a feeling on it, just that I just sort of felt strange. And um it it continued when that night I couldn't get any sleep at all. I kept, you know, maybe I was imagining it, but I just felt like I could hear things, you know, odd clicks, things moving in the room. Um, my partner joked that, you know, I, even though it was the summer, I was, she was sweating because I was right up against her back in this bed uh, in the middle of summer because I wasn't sleeping and I was convinced that there was maybe something in the room. Um, the next morning at breakfast, uh, we were talking to the server and I mean, I think I, I don't know whether I mentioned something or she just said, she offered up the fact that, uh, that there were ghosts in the house and, uh, on the property and that, you know, it was just kind of accepted that, you know, you would put down a pair of keys and on a table and they would show up somewhere else in the house, uh, and nobody had moved them. And, uh, you know, they just said that, that was just something that they lived with and they weren't too stressed about it. Well, of course that did nothing to help me sleep the next night, uh, hearing that there were actual reports of things moving and, you know, being misplaced and things like that. Uh, so again, it was a night of dread for me. I, I didn't get very much sleep that second night either. Uh, so yeah, I mean, I didn't see anything, you know, I didn't, you know, doors didn't close and open on their own or anything like that. I didn't feel like there was anybody in the shower with me. It was just kind of an, a feeling of dread over the two nights that we we stayed there uh and so yeah that's my story kind of paranormal story uh if you do want to visit the balladary inn you can go to balladaryinn.com b-a-l-l-a-d-e-r-r-y-i-n-n.com and book the garden room because maybe you'll have an experience like i did thanks a lot it's interesting when people really have trouble with that. Some people take it in stride, no issues because they're comfortable with it. Maybe they have more experiences because they're more sensitive to it um, and, and have that experience uh, of, of regularly feeling that presence of spirit in, in some way. Um, I, I don't know if you're, if you're told that's the way it is and, and you're convinced and it's going to get in your mind that that bang, that click, whatever – is is something that shouldn't be there is because of the spirit world um you're going to have issues jeff yeah you know what this is uh really creepy if you think about it um i'm a huge into like those paranormal shows or at least i used to i haven't really watched any recently uh but you're right kels like if somebody puts it in your mind that oh this is supposedly haunted you might go in there with sort of a preconception of what you kind of expect and then every little noise it could be a mouse running around and automatically your mind goes boom is it gonna be a ghost is it a spirit what is it um so i i feel like you know it's a really good point um or a really good observation there um but uh, I feel like we've all sort of had encounters, maybe in, in a sense, where uh, you might be sitting down in a room um, and you hear something or sometimes you can just feel it. Like sometimes you ever get that, guys, where like like you just deep down inside of you, you, you feel like there's something else going on in the, yeah. in, in the room with you. Like yeah. it, it's even really just the movement of air. 
Yeah, yeah. Or the, the, the temperature change, you know, these so-called experts say that um, if there's a ghost or a spirit in your presence, that the temperature changes pretty drastically within the room. Uh, and so maybe you, you feel that. But I'm just thinking, like, imagine just being at your grandparents' place or, or having maybe like, you know, a past uh, family member's belonging with you in that room. So you already have them with you. And then all of a sudden you just, I don't know, I've always had that feeling where sometimes there's like an extra person in that room. And it's not necessarily yeah. a bad thing. It can no, be kind of cool no. too. Sometimes you just but... feel like someone's standing there. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. Just it's, that it's, it's hard to explain. Okay, let's see what Ramya has to say. She shares with us here. The winter is a noisy time of year. You can hear the cars swooshing by on slushy, icy ground. Our coats with the waterproof materials rubbing together as we walk boots crunching in that crisp snow, holiday music playing everywhere you go. Most of the time, the winter is a noisy time of year. Except if you're up walking around in the middle of the night before dawn breaks, before the cars are out, before people are walking around. Everyone else is at home, all warm under their blankets, asleep in their beds, except me. I was up one very cold winter night in the middle of downtown Toronto, taking the night bus to downtown to get to a 7 a.m. eye appointment. I took the absolutely empty night bus all the way down to Front Street and got off to find construction everywhere. I had to get to Union to take the GO train, but how? Nobody was around. I could barely see Navigating with my white cane was awful this time of year. I was freezing, sleepy, and I was all alone. It was so quiet. There was barely any light outside, just street lamps, construction, and me. I was sick of these early appointments and was half contemplating calling them right there, right then, and canceling it when I could start to hear footsteps. Thinking this is my only chance, I walked up to the place, the person, the thing that I was hearing, and I said, excuse me, over the howling wind, are you headed to Union Station? There was a couple seconds of silence, and I still couldn't spot the person in this dim lighting, but I stood there waiting. Yes, the man answered eventually, follow me. Relief. Okay, someone to follow. But he was already on the move. So as quickly as I could, I tried to follow him, which resulted in me running behind him. I could barely keep up. I tried to keep eyes on his bright neon-colored striped jacket, which was the only thing I could see, and I could barely spot with these dim street lamps. And I kept my best from falling over these construction cones and bumping into pylons, and finally... After what felt like ten minutes of me running after this man, I saw light coming from a building. That's Union Station. Thank you, sir, I turned around to say, but he was gone. Not walking away, crunching in the snow with his neon jacket, just gone. And I thought about it. We hadn't conversed on our jog over to Union Station. He never slowed down when we got to the station, and he definitely did not enter the subway and whenever I reflect on this night and on this man who helped me to this station I try to remember did I even 
hear footsteps that night. Yeah. Wow. That's that's bizarre for sure because and I and I think about about it in this way. I think paranormal activity would be really, really odd, even more so someone with someone who's partially sighted. Because you would automatically be questioning yourself, was that my eyes? Did it really happen? And you could hear in Ramia's tape, there was a lot of questioning going on. Wait, what did I actually see and hear during that whole encounter? Yeah, you get into where you just really just say, I, I guess I was wrong, but I spoke to the person. I'm sure I heard someone say, all right, follow me. Or, or whatever, but you never get close to the person. You know, you you got to panic because you're trying to, you know, follow along and you're worried. Am I even following the person? I can't even see them. We're the, you know, I hear the crunching. I think, is that for real or not? I know for myself, uh, and we talk in Greg's about the, the age of um, the inn. And I remember uh, when I went to Fanshawe, I met a bunch of friends and uh, a couple of them um, became a couple and they were moving, but they went for jobs. They got to work in Sarnia uh, and they were going to end up back here in London. So they asked me to help them move stuff up into a, a farmhouse that the family owned, um, the, the, uh, the, 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 the partner, the female, um, her, her parents had a farmhouse. It was the one that the grandparents had been in that was empty. So they were using it for storage. So we brought a bunch of stuff over, and I remember uh, I was told, hey, can you take this stuff upstairs, Cal? Yep. They had to go to a door, went in the door, and started climbing the, uh, upstairs to, to put this stuff box that I had down. I don't know what happened, but I felt for a moment I, I lose, lost my balance. I started to tilt backwards, and in my mind, you got to be able to twist or something, man, because you're going to be falling backwards with this box down the stairs to the door at the bottom. And at that point on my right shoulder, somebody helped balance me. I didn't feel a hand clutch my shoulder. I felt a palm go against my shoulder and just steady me. So I thought my friend had come up the step behind me, and I turned to Chris and said, Hey, thanks, but there was no Chris. There was nobody. But I can tell you, something solid enough kept me from falling backwards down those steps. I'm a big guy, and this is several years back. Big, strong guy, but something was there enough to steady the big man from going down the stairs. And I'm not one to necessarily be able to have that much feeling of uh, the spiritual world. Um, And that was definitely a physical touch and steadying. So uh, it was an interesting experience, Jeff. Yeah. And Kels, that's another one of those ones that um, could be more of like a good spirit. Like, you know, some people get for sure out by these oh, yeah. types of things, but that could yeah. be a guardian angel or something. Well, and, and that's right. Know? And I, I turned after I was steadied and said, thank you. Yeah. Once I realized nobody was there, I, I said out loud, thank you. Brock. Yeah. And sometimes it's those like, um, other feelings like the sights or not, it's not, not necessarily the sights. It could be the sounds and the feel. And that was definitely a feel. And I think that would be a little bit scary, but also at the same time, we're like, <laughs> Didn't fall down the stairs, though. Oh, so yeah. thank you. Yeah, it, it wouldn't have ended well, so I don't know what intervention there was, but I, I certainly thank you. Brock? Yeah, so for me, I've never really had an encounter encounter per se, but I did have a very interesting thing happen with my wheelchair. I was doing a Kelly and Company segment under this very desk that I am sitting under right now, and I know my chair was turned off and I was doing the segment and we were 
going back and forth. And you can't hear a lot of things in your surroundings when the volume is up and the earmuffs are, are covering your ears. And all of a sudden, my chair started elevating. I have a, I have a lifting seat, uh, seat where it elevates up to about five feet in the air. And the entire desk lifted up off the ground about two inches. And the entire thing was teetering on my lap while talking to you guys about sports. And nothing fell off the desk. It all stayed where it should. It was teetering quite a bit. But nothing stayed there. And I, and I finished the segment and I got down very slowly. I was in a lot of pain. Couldn't believe I got through the segment without you guys even noticing that I was in pain. But my legs had the indent of the bottom of the desk in it. And it hurt tremendously. <laughs> Yeah, and again, I think, Jeff, you, as you mentioned, there's that uh, somehow intervention that kept you safe, kept the desk from to- toppling, and, and us oblivious. <laughs> Thanks, guys, for sharing and uh, for hanging out here on the segment as we kind of get you thinking, folks, before your Halloween weekend. We'll also get you thinking with a few items of what's coming up on the network here over the weekend and our show next week. Stick around. So we mentioned it earlier. Subscribe to the Kelly and Company podcast if you would. Maybe give us a rating and review while you're in there. But you can check the show out in segment form or the complete Kelly and Company podcast experience where you really get a chance to settle back in, listen to an audio vanity card. Maybe you're doing some other stuff, especially over the weekend, preparing for Halloween. Baking, maybe? So just check out the show via your favorite podcast platform. Brock, with that mentioned, any segment you want to mention or, or suggest for people to go back and take a listen to? Yes, I want to go back to uh, when we spoke to Dean Brokop, the director of the Paralympic Foundation of Canada, about the Paratuff Cup. I think that this is a great event that they run. Uh, they raise $70,000 in uh, Vancouver, and they have a sold-out event coming up on the 3rd in Montreal, which uh, they're going to raise a lot of money there as well. And I just think that this is a great way to sort of push through parasports. Parasports always feels in general that they're the forgotten, you know, stepbrother, sister in in sports. And, and I think that this this type of event gives us the opportunity to remember and try parasports. And I, and I know that he kind of mentioned it about, you know, a success of the event is whether the athletes and participants have tired arms. And it sounds like they often do because they realize that we use muscles that Often they don't. Really liked getting into it with him about the corporations, the awareness, and like you said about the sore muscles, but just the needs and also where people can go and watch, get interested and say, wow, this would be amazing to enjoy watching the real athletes in competition after I've heard what they've had to say. So really wonderful stuff. Uh, On AMI-audio this weekend, a couple of notes for you folks. On The Guardian, a long read, The Cartel the journalist, and the gangland killings that rocked the Netherlands. In a country known for its liberal drug policies, organized, cooperated uh, under for years, that is, under the public's nose, until a series of shocking killings revealed how deep the problem went. That's The Guardian, a long read, Saturday at 10 a.m. Eastern on AMI-audio. Also this weekend, 
Tune in at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, and we're going to offer up to you on AMI-audio a special airing of The Departure Train. This is an audio drama about a woman who dies and boards a train in the afterlife. Okay, so please do check that out, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, Absolutely wonderful content over the weekend here on AMI-audio. Brock, a big thanks to you for stepping in uh, today. Really always appreciate having you hang out. Yes, I always love uh, being a part of this uh, program, whether as a contributor, a fill-in co-host, sometimes even a fill-in host. Love being a part of it, and we'll always step in where needed and when needed, because I always learn something every time I do this, Kelly. Thank you, sir. Appreciate it. Thank you for being available and making time to be with us today. You can check Brock Richardson out. He's the host and producer of The Neutral Zone. You can find that on podcast or as a a YouTube podcast uh, that really drops after it airs here on AMI-audio Tuesdays at 11 a.m. You can also find him weekdays on Now with Dave Brown, and on our show, he'll be back on Monday. I'll mention that in a couple of moments. I want to recognize Monday's show, ladies and gentlemen. Margaret Weldon will be here on the program with me. Ramya Muthan will join us uh, during segment one. We want you to be with us. Uh, We have a very special announcement pertaining Kelly and Company and upcoming changes. Um, A lot of great stuff. Thumbs up. And we want you to be the first to hear about it from us on the program. So if you would, join us for the kickoff of the show, whether it's via the podcast or live at 2 p.m. Eastern on Monday. On that program, the Yukon Travel and Colorblindness um, Glasses helps individuals see the northern lights. Community reporter Kim Hovey will be here to describe how. Why does a democratic country like Canada need a civil liberties organization? Danielle McLaughlin and Noah Mendel-Aviv, executive director of uh, and general counsel of the Canadian Lib- Civil Liberties Association, will discuss it on uh, Monday. Also, Serena Williams recently stated at a press conference there's a good chance she will return to tennis. Brock Richardson, as I said, he'll give us his feelings when he returns to the show Monday. We chat with Jenny Bovart, the host of Low Vision Moments, an AMI podcast presenting funny experiences that happen when you are blind or partially sighted. And Michael Babcock and Damasi Thomas give us the tricks and treats of online shopping. Producers for this show, folks, Jeff Ryman, reporter Grant Hardy, Ramya Muthan, uh, Marianne Dion Jones, and our senior producer is Matt Agnew. Hosts this week filling in for us, of course, you just heard him, Brock Richardson and Danielle McLaughlin. Our live production manager is Paula Deneen. Manager of AMI-audio is Andy Frank. Please have a safe weekend. Now, get out of here, will ya? Well, it's come again, ladies and gentlemen. The anniversary of Kelly and Company on October 31st, six years, as a show on AMI-audio. And I have to say, am I surprised? No. Why? When we started the live show project on AMI with the morning show, and then our program basically six months later, uh, I had really positive feelings. Again, why? Because at that time, people needed more immediacy. What we were doing as a reading service and the great production values that programs were being produced and spun out of AMI-audio was second to none, okay? Nobody. We were doing a great job. However, it was finding the audience that wanted that content, appreciated that content for, for what was being brought to the table. And in the form 
You can have some wonderful stuff. You just have to bring it to people in a form that they're ready to consume. And, of course, tell people about it. And that's one of the things we've always struggled with at AMI, just letting people know we're, we're an incredibly well-kept secret that we don't want to be. We want everyone to know what we're doing. When the live shows came on the air, it allowed people to say, wow, there's immediacy. These guys are talking about something that just was released yesterday or today, as you hear from our contributors and so many people that are uh, on the ground bringing to you great information in a form that you can consume. And for us in the disability community, in a way that means something to us, people talking about it in the way that, oh, okay, voiceovers being talked about here. I can relate to that. Where you, as maybe someone who doesn't have a disability, you maybe just like to know all that tech stuff or or the latest audiobook because as we've done Kelly and Company, you've seen the explosion of audiobooks. And having audiobooks talked about so much on our program from the book club to Ryan Huey's weekly reports, it's really been tremendous, not to mention the standard things such as our veterinarian and knowing our rights and what everybody else brings to the table. It's just too numerous. So we try not to indulge ourselves too much with with the anniversary of the show but we will say that it's pretty special six years it's a monday which is when the show launched six years ago and we'll also be including a very special announcement when we're reflecting on monday that i hope you'll come back for real important stuff um change they say is good and some of you may have had some hints over time as to as to position changes and all that next week we will explain a lot more about that starting Monday as we celebrate six years of Kelly and Company. Join me every couple weeks for the Outdoors with Lawrence Gunther podcast where we learn about outdoor tech and tips. Plus, we look at news affecting the environment. AMI's Outdoors with Lawrence Gunther is available from your favorite podcast provider.